Thousands of people from Latin America are making their way to the U.S.-Mexico border. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. The group started a 1,200-mile journey to the border last week, just as the Summit of the Americas was beginning in Los Angeles. We'll discuss the declaration that President Biden asked Latin nations to sign on to in order to deal with this challenge. Also, we're going to meet a young woman from Broward County competing in the Miss Florida Outstanding Teen Competition. She has some thoughts on pageantry that may surprise you. And finally, the first ever Juneteenth Wine and Food Festival is coming to South Florida. We'll tell you about the delicious choices you'll find and why this festival is long overdue. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. There are an estimated 6,000 people from different countries in Latin America making a 1,200-mile trek to the U.S. border. They started their journey as the Summit of the Americas began in Los Angeles last week. It's not certain when these folks will arrive at the border, but they're hoping to get away from the poverty and the violence that exists in their countries. So what's going to happen when they reach the border? And what came out of that summit when it comes to the issue of immigration? Well, joining us now is Jack McGuire. He's a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at FIU with a focused study on immigration. He wrote a piece about that group of people migrating right now. It was originally published in The Conversation and again recently in FIU News. Jack, it's great to have you on the program. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, we've seen this before when we see a massive group of people migrating toward the border. What's unique about this one? Um, not necessarily much other than most of these, uh, most of the people in this, we frequently call them caravans, uh, are from Venezuela. So that's about the, the most unique thing. But, uh, you know, we see these all the time. And, uh, you know, over the past three years, most have been, most have been broken up before they can reach the U.S.-Mexico border. You know, we have to remind ourselves that this journey is really treacherous. I mean, what are some of the challenges that they face as they try to make their way up to the U.S.? I mean, it's uh, absolutely incredible. I mean, it's a really, really dangerous journey. I mean, for instance, the Venezuelans had to make their way through what's called the Darien Gap, which is basically this ungoverned territory between Colombia, Colombia, Venezuela, and Panama, uh, which is just jungle. And, you know, lots of people die. Lots of people are killed uh, on the travel through Mexico. Lots of women are raped. It's some horrendous number, like 60 to 80 percent, um, you know, that includes by security forces in both Mexico and, you know, in other regions in, in Central America. And it's, um, yeah, it's an incredibly perilous journey. And many people know that before they leave. Um and so, you know, that just speaks to the conditions that people need to leave from, which is, you know, it's they feel, you know, it's basically certain death and despair where they're living. And then it's, you know, a chance at something better if they leave. And of course, it's not just, you know, the 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 concern of the danger of the journey. But once you arrive at the border, there's no guarantee that you're getting in. No, not right now. Um, that's basically been the the status quo of the border 
since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, right after the pandemic was officially declared in the United States, the Trump administration implemented uh, this public health order, which is called Title 42. And that allows the it, that allows the government to basically just rapidly deport people or expel people across the U.S.-Mexico border um, before they can even apply for asylum, which is you know legally recognized under United States law and under a bunch of treaties the United States has signed uh, internationally. And that's more or less been the status quo. The Biden administration tried to lift that. Uh, you know, it was supposed to be on May 23rd, but there's a court order that is that has blocked that. So the Title 42 is still in place. But there's a bunch of other weird things that go on there because it's an international relations, uh, you know, agreement. You know, Mexico has to agree to accept these people that are expelled or deported from the United States. And there's, I forget which state in, in Mexico that borders South Texas, uh, but is refusing to accept families with children under seven. And so those families are let into the United States to typically apply for asylum because Mexico won't, won't accept them. Uh, and so it's a, it's a, it's a hodgepodge of, of stuff like that, but in general, the border is, is closed. Yeah. It's, it's one obstacle after another that you have to face. How closely were you following the summit of the Americas last week? Uh, I, I listened, I mean, I listened, uh, I waited for the announcement that there was going to be on migration, but that was, that was about, I'm ready. I'm ready to dissertation. There's not a whole lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, no, you got a lot on your plate for sure. But yeah. what, what was your impression, though, uh, of what you heard, especially you know when they were discussing uh, the issue of immigration? I, what I what I got out of it is, I mean, there it's it's a small step, um, but it's I, it, it's hard to describe. There's a lot of commitments there to, you know, resettle refugees and immigrants to provide greater economic opportunities. It's really broad, um, not necessarily a whole lot of specifics, but the, I mean, the commitments are tiny, you know, the, I mean, for instance, the United States uh, agreed to like resettle 20,000 refugees from Latin America and the Caribbean. And, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people currently on the border. And, you know, there's a couple other a couple other agreements like that with different countries, but it's 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 really unfortunately it's it's insufficient. But I mean, the problems in the region that are driving migration are so much are so much bigger than uh, than what that agreement tried to address. I guess is 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 my main takeaway from that. Yeah, I want to come back. You said uh, you had mentioned that most of the families are broken up. How? Remind us how. Well, not necessarily, not families, but most of the caravans are oh, are, are, are are broken up, and this so this has been uh, this has been something the United States has been working on for a while, basically since the Bush administration is becoming more coordinated with uh, you know Mexico and other countries in Central America, and basically pressuring them to use their security forces to try and stop migrants before they even reach the United States, and Mexico has really taken on a big role of this. In the last couple of years, in, in southern Mexico, in the in Tapachula, uh, there's you know there's literally thousands and thousands of, of migrants that are waiting for these you know, humanitarian visas just to try and cross Mexico uh, to apply for asylum in the United States, and so Mexico is playing a, a big role in, in that right now. So that's been uh, happening in Guatemala, it's happening a bit in Honduras, um, but Mexico has been the main actor in that for for the last couple of years. 
Again, I'm talking with Jack McGuire, a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at FIU, studying immigration. We're talking about the issue of immigration, specifically about the Summit of the Americas, which was last week, and what came out of that gathering. Also, following this large group, thousands of people making their way through Central America and Mexico to the U.S. border, uh, they left from, again, the Venezuela-Colombia area, 1,200-mile trek, Still waiting to see when they arrive and how many do make it. Uh, again, uh, Jack here wrote a piece about this uh, that's in the conversation. We'll share that link on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Jack, I want to come back to what you were saying again with uh, at coming back to the summit. There was this declaration, and I wanted to kind of uh, you know dive a little deeper into it. The Biden administration asking nations to sign this, the issue of dealing with the issue of migration. But what was in that declaration? You said it's not really a whole lot we're asking of other countries. No, I mean, it's really broad declaration. The United States secure commitments from, uh, for instance, from like Costa Rica to uh, improve and continue its program to uh, provide temporary access to, you know, a temporary humanitarian visa to, I believe, the Venezuelans and a couple other uh, and a couple other nationalities. Uh, same with Colombia. You know, Colombia is reaffirming its its commitment to. I mean, they they granted uh, temporary status and humanitarian statuses to something like 1.5 million Venezuelans that have that have uh, immigrated to Colombia since the start of the crisis in Venezuela. Uh, you know, I believe the and other than that, there's some commitments by the United States. There's some agreements in investments. So there's money uh, that's been given to the United States development agencies in uh, kind of like a USAID. Uh, and there's also some, I was say, there's some there's some commitments for what they call humane border enforcement, uh, trying to process asylum seekers that come to the border uh, more more quickly, uh, as well as to support those that don't have. Uh, that don't have added, that don't have uh, adequate claims to assign. What do you think about how the Biden administration has dealt with the issue of immigration compared to his predecessor? It's I mean, so it's a bit there's there's two main factors in it, basically. I mean, along the U.S.-Mexico border, the status quo is basically the same. Uh, the Biden administration has tried to change stuff that the Trump administration did. Uh, but it's been blocked really by the courts. Uh, not as he didn't change stuff as lot fast as fast as a lot of immigration advocates would like it, but he's been trying to change stuff. Um, internally, in regards to immigration processing, uh, Biden administration has been doing a much better, much better job at trying to to solve all this bureaucracy that was slowed down during the Trump administration in attempts to to slow down immigration in the United States. Trump administration implemented a bunch of extra hurdles and uh, increased a lot of the uh, burdens of proof on immigrants in order for them to get status or to adjust their status or even just processing through, you know, the the green card system. Uh, so the, the, the Trump administration was really, I mean, really tried to break that, to be quite honest. And the Biden administration has done a lot better job at uh, putting that together and trying to trying to make that work. But the pandemic has really thrown a wrench in that. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, you still obviously with the pandemic, but looking at social, economic and even climate issues, you look across Latin America over the next 10 years. What do you see happening with migration patterns or what do you think is coming in this next decade here? Oh, migration is going to increase. Uh, It's 
there's this is this is the beginning of I mean it's not the beginning this has been going on for a long time but the problems that have been plaguing Latin America are likely only going to get worse you know there's the inequality there's um, violence climate change you know th these problems that you said there's the way the world is set up is basically this this giant system of of capital accumulation sorry I have to use that word but basically it's like people want to accumulate money and stuff. And then these other areas of the globe are built into these little production hubs that send goods and goods to those centers of, of money and business and power. And so when you look at Latin America, that's the system that has really been set up to funnel money and goods to mainly the United States and to other countries. Um, but the conditions in those to make that an attractive business investment for people um, have to be pretty bad. Otherwise, they would make it in like the United States or somewhere else where they need to make more money. And so this process generates that inequality, that poverty, which then breeds violence. Um, and then you're going to throw climate change on top of that. And it's just going to continue to, to grow. And nobody is trying to fundamentally change that system is the problem. And so that's why the, the migration pact that was agreed to at the Summit of the Americas isn't really going to do a whole lot to actually address the reasons that I mean, the, the you know those quote unquote root causes because this system that's going on now is just going to continue to create those problems. Jack, I appreciate the time and the insight. Something to think about as we move forward. An issue, as you've said, we've been dealing for a while for for quite a while, and still no answers. I really thank you for the time. Oh, thank you for having me. Again, Jack McGuire, Ph.D. candidate of sociology at FIU studying immigration. Check out his latest piece in the conversation on this issue. Again, as we follow this large group of migrants, uh, people coming uh, to the United States to the border, starting in, in Venezuela and South America, uh, still waiting to see when they do reach the border. Find all of it on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, Juneteenth. Is coming up, and we're going to discuss the role that food has played in commemorating that historic day. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Black Southerners have been celebrating Juneteenth for decades, but it only became an official federal holiday last year. It's a day to commemorate the day emancipation reached enslaved people in the deepest parts of the South when a Union general arrived at the southeast coast of Texas to finally share the news that they had been freed. That was on June 19, 1865, over two years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Food, especially red soda, red punch, have always been at the center of Juneteenth gatherings. Well, this year, South Florida is home to the first Juneteenth Food and Wine Festival. It's happening Friday and Saturday in Miami. Star X Smith, a local food blogger and chief eating officer, is the founder of the festival. He joins us now. Star X, great to have you back. Hey, how are you? Doing great. You know, I think about uh, commemorating special days. Food is always somewhere a part of that. Tell me about that link between the commemoration of Juneteenth and food, the role it plays. Sure. So uh, obviously, uh, the holiday uh, in and of itself is, it originates uh, from Galveston, Texas, and everyone well, everyone should know the story of of 
general major, sorry, major, uh, you know, letting the, the enslaved folks know that they had been free technically since 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. Uh, however, that news did not get to them until uh, months after the Civil War ended in 1865. So June 19th represents, uh, you know, the very last day that Americans were enslaved, and that's something that should be definitely commemorated. And so uh, food represented so much to enslaved people, and the crops that they grew, uh, the crops that they became uh, really known for, sweet potatoes, black-eyed peas, watermelon, you know, these crops were, uh, many, in many respects, collard greens were called prosperity mills. Corn, uh, you know, cold, corn represented gold, and uh, black-eyed peas and collard greens represented fortune and, and, and good, good futures. And so that notion uh, really centered around this joyous holiday and commemorating it with, uh, you know, family, friends, and connecting almost in, in a reunion fashion. Uh, food was at the center of that. And so uh, today we commemorate Juneteenth in, in a very similar fashion. We've done it uh, uh, with our brand, TheHungryBlackMan.com, um, for over nine years now. And so uh, we were just excited to have it sort of matriculate into the uh, food and wine experience. And pretty much that's that's what we're doing now. And and how are you going to expand that you know, again? You know, celebrate that celebration through this festival and and keeping that legacy going. So we we know that uh, in many respects, uh, black centered black American centered holidays, unfortunately, are sort of centered around like pain and and suffering or uh, something that becomes either undesirable. Like for instance, the representation of red. Uh, doing uh, Juneteenth as this this sort of uh, very uh, erroneous belief that it represents the blood of our ancestors and and it doesn't uh, the the red simply represents what it rep- represents in in all Western African cultures very positive uh, sentiments and so watermelon is at the center of that uh, the the crop uh, which we were going to do a lot at the festival but we ended up not doing that. Um, it, it that that celebration of of food through uh, the crops that were grown and the representation through food food today, we plan on expanding that sort of representation throughout the festival. And so the vendors that are at the festival are creating uh, different entrees that represent that sort of um, really really spiritual meaning behind the color red and what it means as far as Juneteenth is concerned. So we we plan on expanding. The, the definition of June, Juneteenth through the vendors and, and the, the, the dishes that they're creating. What are you most excited for people to experience in this festival? So, like I said before, I really want folks to experience Black American culture and celebrate it and be a part of it, very similar to the way that people celebrate St. Patrick's Day. You know, everyone's Irish on St. Patrick, whether you're Black, White, <laughs> Asian, or whatever. And, and when it's Black, it's always like, oh, am I invited? Or is this exclusionary? And it's not. It's, it's, it's definitely something that is American, and we want everyone to understand that and connect to it. And that's what it's about. It's about freedom. It's about the, the possibilities and all of those things that make America great. Like, that's what Juneteenth represents. And so it's a celebration of black culture. It's a celebration of black freedom. But when we say black freedom, that's American freedom. So we want everyone to understand on Juneteenth, like, everyone is a part of that lineage and that legacy. 
And so that's what the food festival represents. It's a great equalizer. It's a great connector. And this way we feel that everyone can truly connect and be, you know, African-American on Juneteenth. <laughs> so that's, that's, <laughs> our, that's our goal. That would be a great goal for all of us to, uh, to be able to achieve. Remind us again, StarX, how this festival came, came about, where the idea came from. Sure. Uh, so we had uh, historically celebrated So Vegan Fest uh, as our Black History celebration, uh, which is also a celebration of food. Uh, black American cuisine is, is highly uh, vegetarian, and a lot of folks don't realize that. It gets this like demonizing sort of uh, idea that it's devoid of vitamins and nutrients and just filled with all these unhealthy things, and that's such a huge misnomer. And so we wanted to create a festival during Black History Month, which is Soul Vegan Fest, to highlight that. When you talk about our legumes, which are black-eyed peas, butter beans, uh, pinto beans, red beans, when you talk about our starches, sweet potatoes, um, our veggie, vegetables like, you know, uh, okra and lima beans, excuse me, that's a legume, but okra and collard greens and turnip greens and string beans and on and on, right? Like these, like, looks like a vegan plate. And so we created that Soul Vegan Festival and we did it in Miami Beach. It went really well. People were super excited. And so we asked ourselves, you know, what does Juneteenth look like? We, we were doing our festival, but it wasn't centered around food. And so we looked at the South Beach Food and Wine Festival that happens during Black History Month as well. And we were asking uh, years ago, you know, how can we diversify this festival so that it can be more inclusive and, and black food pathways can be represented and so on and so forth. Well, that festival um, had challenges in accomplishing that. So we decided that we wanted to do something that had that same element, but at the same time achieve the goals of in, like inclusion. And so that's really how Juneteenth uh, Food and Wine was born as a reaction uh, of a lack of diversity from, I think, our town's largest food and wine festival. You know, putting that together and doing it during the summer months just made a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, and we, we talked about that on this program, the the South Beach Food and Wine, the Wine and Food Festival, not having enough of that inclusivity. And then this past year, they announced that they were going to make some changes. Uh, they hired a diversity consultant. They recruited more black chefs and restaurant owners. What's your take on their effort? Um, I, I thought it was underwhelming. Uh, I think that it was reactionary and uh, the structure and how they uh, rolled out with the, the diversity was almost uh, sort of uh, counterproductive. Uh, when you have chefs like Marcus Samuelson, who's actually Swedish nationality and ethnicity, he's uh, Ethiopian, and he's probably the poster child for like minority representation for the festival. And so the larger scale events, the outputs, the posters, the representation of who's going to be there, it still remained the same. Uh, the website, it still remained the same. And so, you know, sprinkling a couple black chefs here and there and not really diving into uh, what what the diversity truly meant was a bit challenging. Uh, and given Marcus Samuelson's background, like having him do fried chicken and, you know, jazz brunch and ribs, and like it, that that's problematic for anyone that has uh, a more in-depth understanding of, African-American food pathways and sort of where we are and, and how we would like to be represented. I think it was an effort of, of reaction as opposed to organic and, and very natural progression of a festival. Uh, that's, just, that's just my take on it. Do you think that your festival is either going to fill in what they didn't do or will push them to you know, really become more inclusive? 
I, I really don't have a goal uh, for that. I think that that festival is, is what it is, it, and, and it doubled down on it, and it's fine. Uh, when something, you know, comes about where you have an opportunity to fill a void, uh, do it, right? And so this is, this is a festival where we want all walks of life to come celebrate Black culture and not feel as if they are being, like, imposed or forced to tap into a source of pain and struggle because that is always the sort of, like, talking point of our race is always, like, through pain or struggle. And because of that, it, it becomes a barrier for entry. Folks feel uncomfortable. And sometimes, even within our people, we'll double down on that, on that narrative. And that's not the narrative of Juneteenth. It's not about... It's not about slavery. It's about the, the progression past slavery, right? right. Acknowledging the, the suffering, but at the same time, our ancestors, this was a joyous day for them. They didn't reflect. They didn't mourn. It was a day of celebration. And so for us, we want to recreate that. What does that look like? A 1900, like 1901 Juneteenth celebration in, you know, Gainesville, Florida. You know, our, our folks weren't around crying and going visiting grave sites that was memorial day you know that was those were days that were for that purpose and that's not juneteenth and so um i want this festival to be just that like a representation of freedom even from past paradigms of thinking of our holidays as this sort of exclusive you know painful experience so that's that's the goal I'm talking with Star X Smith. He is the man behind the food blog called Hungry Black Man and the founder of the upcoming Juneteenth Food and Wine Festival. It's happening Friday and Saturday in Miami. Find more information about the festival. A link to his blog. It's on our social media at WLRN Sundial. You know, Star X, uh, there's so many food cultures when you, you think about, you know, within the black cuisine, and you mentioned them in your blog about, you know, covering Chicago and Detroit, Atlanta, Miami, and, and, and a bunch more. What parts of that, that diverse cuisine are going to be highlighted at this festival? Yeah, so we have Chef Max Hardy, who is one of the, the nation's most notable chefs. Uh, he's going to be on hand on Friday uh, at a really great uh, dinner that, that's taking place. And on Saturday, the actual festival, uh, which, and guys, it, and, and tapering expectations, Saturday is nowhere near the, the South Beach Food and Wine as far as capital investment but it is a start and we're happy that folks are definitely getting tickets we have about 1400 people that have said that they're getting tickets and so uh you can expect to see chef max hardy you can expect to see chef carla hall uh internationally known uh chef and food network personality uh the food that's represented there are you know like things from detroit that i just love like detroit's one of our favorite foodie cities and it's one of the largest black cities in 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 the nation and so Folks don't realize it, but it's just it's delicious. So we, we're going to have a representation from Detroit. Uh, we have some folks coming from uh, the Treasure Coast. Believe it or not, the Treasure Coast of Florida has some of the best soul food you ever you ever imagined. We have people like Chef Kofi, Chris Kofi, who is a vegan chef extraordinaire, and he's doing some elemental vegan food. Uh, you have uh, Big Lip Bandit, who's on 99 Jams, and I think he's on another station now. He created a great... Um, um, business called crazy vegan and they do these really whimsical sort of uh delicious vegan burgers uh you have a vegan uh concept coming from orlando where they're bringing soul food vegan things like i i couldn't believe that she made a whole uh fried chicken macaroni and cheese black eyed peas plate that was uh totally it's collard greens totally vegan um and so we have some really great uh barbecue from sticky finger barbecue 
uh, Grill Daddy's Barbecue, uh, High Heat Barbecue, so it's that nice Miami sort of South Florida-style barbecue. Uh, we don't have the low and slow, uh, so we have the fast and high. You know, so so Miami's barbecue is a little different, more like grilled ribs. Yeah. And then you have uh, some some really oh you have um, Flybird, Chef Troy. Uh, so we have chefs represented with their brands, but we we wanted to be a little less pretentious in the sense of like folks not being able to connect. So the food is very identifiable. Like you feel connected, you feel warm, and then it's a lot of performances going on with the Hardeman Project and. Um, uh, a young man whose uh, his name is Ronnie VOP. He was on the four with uh, Sean Combs and, and and DJ Khaled. He won a, a lot of rounds in the show, so he's highlighting the night with Janaya and their band. Uh, so there's going to be some really great music. We made it a little later, uh, from four to eleven, so that the sun cannot like murder everybody. <laughs> and, and so we're happy, and we're also really happy with the city of Miami Beach. We know that Miami Beach has gotten just a bad rap for uh, all sorts of uh, black events, you know, and that, and, and I, and I don't want to call them black events. They're mainly urban events. We have to do a better job at separating like a musical genre and a very small group of people that to be all encompassing of a race. So that's something that I wanted to point out because we've been on Miami beach for five years and, and our festivals draw over 4,000 folks. And not once has there been any form of incident the same way we're sharing this weekend with the International uh, Black Film Festival. And so I think folks don't highlight the fact that there's thousands of black people on the beach right now, and no one's jumping on a car and twerking or having some sort of breakdown in a restaurant. (laughs) You know, and so I think that, I think people need to do a better job at separating those, 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 those realities, right? Like the urban culture is not synonymous with, or all encompassing of black people. And so, being able to see that sort of dualism is really what we want to accomplish. And it's not proving ourselves to anyone. It's black people being able to celebrate with other people where it doesn't turn into like a performative experience. A lot of times when we celebrate ourselves naturally and we're with each other, we might have cultural references and norms that to other folks look like it's like a performance and that can be problematic. So we, we tend not to like be ourselves in public because you don't want your organic nature to turn into some sort of spectacle or performance. And I think that that safe space is something that we created. And Miami Beach has been a big supporter of that. So I really give kudos to the city government of Miami Beach and the Parks and Rec Department because they've been incredibly hospitable. And you know what? I mean, you have all these cultures here in Miami, and but it's the same thing, is that, you know, they we have our traditions and we have our ways of expressing ourselves, you know, different, different Latin groups have different ways of expressing themselves. That's very open, you know, very public. And, but maybe we don't, I guess we don't see that as, is necessarily a bad thing. We, you know, we're not respecting the fact that every group has their own way of celebrating whatever that may be. I'm still getting past the fact that or I can't get past the fact you said the Treasure Coast has really good soul food. I did not know that. Thank oh you. For, thank you for telling me. Now yeah. I know. I'm, I'm looking. I'm going to go look. So I got to ask you, coming back to, uh, you know, we had you on some years back, uh, you know, when you started your blog, The Hungry Black Man, and where that idea came from. It's, it's a, I love the origins of this. Right. Right. So um, I had a very uncomfortable 
uh, unfortunately, very racist dining experience uh, in Miami. And as a result, uh, I just start asking the hard question of like, you know, where are the culinary forward black owned restaurants? When you look at Miami Spice and you enjoy the, the, the tapestry, the, the culinary tapestry in Miami, you know, there was just a void of black representation. And I was like, well, like, how do we find that? How do we find that? And it was, it was, it started out, folks were laughing at me. You know, I, I decided to start a media company that, that had a, a, a blog at the time. I had no followers. Um, I took some food, you know, wine tasting courses. I took cheese tasting courses. I wanted to really get into just like how the pa- palate is structured and, you know, know what I'm talking about when I went to these restaurants. And so we did that. And, um, put money behind it. And then I started to do free reviews as a result of the nonprofit that we started, uh, which is now the center for black innovation. And we started to like, cause I was like, Hey, this is costing me money. You know, so yeah. I'm, 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 I'm paying for these things. But so I had to get some charitable aspect because the businesses, they get our reviews for free. And so we started with nothing and I'm buying the food and, and long story short, uh, we grew and we grew and now we're, over all of our social channels, we have over a hundred thousand followers. Uh, we have a blog that has close to three hundred thousand subscribers, uh, and we are in about seven cities. And that that has been a true economic engine for uh, black-owned businesses who r- routinely, unfortunately, get overlooked, especially when it comes to tourism and when it comes to talking about food in a very culinarily driven sense. And not rooted in like some sort of like cultural highlight, right? Like right. black restaurants, they only get like highlighted when it's like Juneteenth or Black History Month, and then it goes dark. And then when they do get highlighted, it's all like ribs and fried chicken and these very like stereotypical like food pathways or whatnot. No, exactly. So, I, yeah, no, no, no. And and that's the other thing that to, that I love is, and you look at overlooked restaurants too, a lot of them, and and that gives us a chance to learn about new things. Let me finish with this. I love this. First of all, I love your title, Chief Eating Officer. That's just great. I love it. Um, you know what? What what are you most proud of when you think about all the work you've done over the years? Uh, I'm most proud of Smith and Webster. Uh, Smith and Webster is a restaurant that we founded uh, just a month ago, and it is the it is the iteration of all the hard work that we put in, tasting all over the nation, and creating a restaurant that we felt that Miami was missing. Um, and that was something that wasn't really planned. I literally like had an opportunity with a partner, Kayvon Webster. We put our last names together and we created this space to represent a summation of all of the hard work over six years that we put in into the brand. So for me, it's, it's the creation of a, of a permanent space for our home, which is South Florida and particularly Miami to really, really dive in and connect to the black food ecosystem wow. in a very real sense. So that would be my most proudest moment. Star X, I, w- I wish you nothing but success, uh, continued success, but especially for this uh, you know, upcoming uh, food and wine festival. Great to have it here in town. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We'll have to have you back as much as possible. He is Star X Smith behind the food blog called Hungry Black Man, founder of the upcoming Juneteenth Food and Wine Festival, again happening Friday and Saturday. Learn more on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, we're going to talk to a Broward High Schooler passionate about making change in the pageant circuit.
Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. In the world of pageants and pageantry, there's been a lot of public criticism in recent years. Conversations about objectifying beauty and a lack of diversity have even led the Miss America organization to end the swimsuit competition. Now, that's a start, but it's not the full fix or the full picture. Not according to Broward County High Schooler Asha Cope Edwards. She has other changes that she wants to see implemented on the pageant circuit. And while she's currently Miss Gold Coast Outstanding Teen, and she's competing for the title of Miss Florida Outstanding Teen in the Miss America system next week in Lakeland, I spoke with Asha yesterday about her truth in pageantry. And she told me why she believes it's a powerful tool for young women like her. A lot of people don't know this, but Miss America is one of the largest uh, provider of scholarships for women in America. And so that's what initially drove me to even want to compete. And then on top of that, it gives you so many opportunities to practice public speaking and you're encouraged to have a social impact, which is something that you do in your community. And that was really interesting to me because I definitely wanted to do something in my community that meant something to me. You, you've been doing pageants, what, since you were very young? Well, yes and no. I did one pageant when I was six, and it was the Miss Jamaica Florida pageant because my mom wanted to, she wanted me to learn more about my culture. I'm Jamaican and I'm a first generation American. So my mom really wanted me to stay in touch with uh, my Jamaican heritage. So I did that one pageant and I didn't do any more after that until this year, I decided that I was really interested in competing um, in pageants again in the Miss America system. What was that experience like for you, though? You said you what, you were six. What was that like? Oh, uh, it was really interesting. I mean, I've always been a really girly girl, so I was super interested. I really loved the idea of getting dressed and putting on the makeup and the hair and doing stuff like that. So it was really exciting for me. Um, but it was also great to meet other girls who were Jamaican and, um, you know, get to practice a talent and being on stage. And I think it helped me come out of my shell a little bit and learn how to speak publicly. So it was a really good experience. You know, coming back in and, and doing this, you know, Miss Florida Outstanding Teen, um, still notice, though, that not a lot of girls of color in these pageants. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's really problematic because um, in my point of view, the people who are representing the state and the national title holders and state title holders should be representative of the area that they come from. So as Florida as a state, we're super diverse. We're full of so many different cultures and backgrounds. So I think that the women who have these titles should be representing everyone. It shouldn't represent a small group of people or just some people. We need to really be representing everyone. So that's part of the reason why I wanted to compete. I really wanted to make sure that other girls knew that, yes, you can compete, you can win, and you can. I wanted to be a really good representative for other girls. You know, coming back to when you were the six-year-old in this pageant your mom put you in. Did you want to keep doing it after that? No, I was done. Um, I really enjoyed <laughs> being on stage, but the preparation was a lot for me. So I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm done after that. And I kind of just gave up on it for a while, but here I am again, you know? But I had read that, you know, for there, there are some young women who would love to keep doing it, but it's, quite expensive sometimes yes i would have to agree with you um my mom's a teacher so i know firsthand how expensive this can be i have a single mom and she's a teacher so we've been really getting creative on how to pay for dresses costumes everything like that my mom and i have 
handmade pretty much everything or thrifted and made it by hand. So I that's a part of the thing that I would really love to address if I were to become Miss Florida's Outstanding Team. I want to make it more achievable for more girls because uh, the, the Miss America organization recently released a um, diversity statement and basically there's they said in that statement that any girl of good character um is worthy of wearing the crown and i want to make that more achievable because there's so many amazing girls so many amazing women who are worthy of being a title holder but will never be able to compete because it's so expensive time consuming and it's just not achievable for the average girl is that something that w- would if you do win, and that's again something you want to do to try to make it, make it more accessible for for a lot of different people, do you think that's something that Miss America organization should be a part of, or is it just about finding that money from other groups? How do you, how do you make that more accessible for more people? Sure, um, I think that it's a group effort. I think that first of all, not a lot of girls even know that they can actually get scholarships from this organization or even know that this organization uh, really exists. I mean, I think people know about Miss America, but I don't think they understand how they can be a part of it, how they can easily join and um, make themselves a part of the organization. So I think that's a part of it. There needs to be way more outreach. And I think um, there needs to be a system in place specifically to get more girls from different backgrounds interested in it. Because I think if more girls knew that this was um, an option that they would pursue it, I just think a lot of girls don't know. And I think that the Miss America organization really needs to be a part of a force that kind of, you know, really gets more girls ready to compete. And um, it's gonna, it's not just the Miss America organization. We need funding from all kinds of people but I think we all have to come together to make that happen. Now, you came back to do this because, again, you did the pageant when you were six and then you left. You didn't want to do it again. You came back. But did you know? Did, I mean, because it's about, as you said, a lot of people don't know what they, you know, what the possibilities are. Did you know about those possibilities? No. I mean, the pageant system that I was in when I was six was a completely different system. It was not connected to the North America organization whatsoever. But uh, I had no idea about some of the perks or the things that came with being a title holder in the system. And uh, I like I was never told. And I think a lot of girls aren't. They're just told uh, they just see the girls on TV and on Instagram who are doing these amazing things and think, well, you know, I can't do that. That's not something that I'll be able to achieve. I'm speaking with Asha Cope Edwards. She's currently Miss Gold Coast representing Broward County. And she's vying for the title of Miss Florida Outstanding Teen in the Miss Florida competition. It's in Lakeland, happening next week on the 25th. You can find more about her work on our social media at WLRN Sundial. How often do you run into people who don't like beauty pageants? Oh, a lot. A lot of people think it's super superficial. And I have to to say that I used to be like that. I used to think that the organization was kind of it was fake. It was all about, you know, choosing the prettiest girl, the um, judging women based on what they look like. And it was like a cattle show. But once you get into the organization, you see the, the women and girls who are here and they're doing amazing things. I mean, these are students. These women are going to college. They're 
pursuing a social impact within their communities. They're doing amazing things while going to school, while competing, and they're getting scholarships. And that's really what the main goal of the organization is. Not what, only do you get a title. Oh, continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, no, no, but it, you felt that way. But what changed your mind? What changed my mind was, um, okay, well, I'm really interested in uh, local government and politics. And I was looking at uh, just a lot of female government officials, and I didn't realize how many of them actually did pageantry. So I was like, well, what is, what's up with this? And I started to do my research a little more and saw that it's primarily a scholarship organization. And the, the goal of competing and everything like that is to get that scholarship. You know, one of the interesting things, and I didn't know this, uh, you know, I, I looked it up, that it was just a few years ago that the Miss America organization announced that it had put an end to the swimsuit competition. Yes. How did, how did that change everything? Well, I think this really solidified that it's not a beauty competition. We're not trying to choose the most beautiful girl on stage. It's not about the it's not about the dress the girl's in, it's the girl in the dress. And it's not about what they look like. It's really what they're doing in their communities, the character, all of those things. There's been, a, you know, a lot of emphasis, come back to what you said earlier, about trying to create that diversity. What What has been your experience, though, in the local competitions? Do you see more diversity or is it still lacking? Unfortunately, there's still... Uh, at locals, national, or even state competitions, unfortunately, there's still a huge lack of diversity. And I think this is another thing that I'm coming back to. I think it's because a lot of girls don't know that this is achievable and this is something that they can do, and they've never seen anyone who looks like them do this. And especially in the state of Florida, which is shocking to me because we're one of the most diverse states. We have so many different cultures. We're just not seeing the diversity. You have, because again, this is about the scholarship opportunities for you, but you have a specific interest in the legal system that really, yes. st and it started what, during a, a school field trip? Actually, yes. So um, I've, I've always known I wanted to be a lawyer. And um, right now I'm in the legal program at my school. I go to Sheridan Technical, so I'm in a technical program. And we were on a field trip. We went to the courthouse and we were, we were just speaking with the judge. And I think it was Judge Barner. And he was talking to us about um, how so many kids in the legal system, especially um, young teens, are repeat offenders and how many of them actually came from foster cares. So that got me thinking and that's what kind of got me interested in um, what has become my social impact initiative and my, my now uh, nonprofit, Foster the Change, which um, basically, our goal is to address the foster care to prison pipeline, which I didn't realize was such a huge deal. And I wondered what you've learned from the, you know, the time that you started that and the work that you've done so far. What have you learned that has helped you, you know, as you move forward preparing for this competition, the Miss Teen competition? Uh, definitely one thing I've had to learn was how to be more organized. And that sounds kind of small, but um when you're trying to handle school and you're trying to handle, you know, running a nonprofit and getting prepared for a huge competition like Miss Florida, you really have to stay organized on top of due dates. You have to stay on top of every little detail. If the if these competitions have changed as much as they have, as as much as they say, 
and it's not about beauty, but trying to find, you know, I get really judging women, young women, very differently than what these competitions have been for many years. How do you prepare for this? What, what's what, you know, in this next week, what are you doing? For me, a lot of it's just been staying up to date with the news and interview. They ask us hard hitting questions, not only about our platform and not only about ourselves, but about what's going on in our communities, what's going on outside of our communities, in the nation, in the state. So you really have to know what's going on and you need to have a good understanding. And it's not really necessarily about uh, what our standpoint is. It's about having an opinion on something that's going on and being able to deliver that opinion um, factually, accurately, and passionately. I'm going to finish with this. There is a lot of pressure on young women nowadays with social media, with school, and we're seeing a mental health crisis in teens in this country. What advice do you have for young women of your generation? Uh, my advice is to... <laughs> It sounds so hard to do this, and I forget to do this sometimes, but it's to really stop comparing yourself and judging yourself based on what you see on social media. I remember um, when I started posting online, feeling really insecure when I'd like post a picture and it would only get a few likes, five or six likes, and think, well, you know, this isn't enough. This is, you know, people don't like the way I look. People aren't liking what I'm saying. But in reality, if you were on the street and five people came up to you and gave you a compliment, that would be overwhelming, you know? So stop calculating how your worth based on how many likes you're getting on pictures and comparing what people are posting online because people are only posting the highlight reel when you think about it. They're only gonna post the best parts of their life. They're not gonna broadcast all the negative things that are happening. It's not a reflection of who we are. That's not a reflection of other people. And you'll be so much happier when you stop doing that. I think that's good advice for all of us. Thank you for that. Asha, congratulations on, on all your success at this point with the nonprofit. And again, good luck in the competition. Thank you so much. That again is Asha Cope Edwards. She's currently Miss Gold Coast representing Broward County. She's vying for the title Miss Florida Outstanding Teen in the Miss Florida competition. It's in Lakeland. It's happening next week. Again, I wish her all the best. That's our program for this Wednesday, June 15th. Coming up tomorrow on the show, the Frost Chopin Festival is back. It's live and in person. We're going to hear from one of the world's most motor the world renowned Chopin experts, also a student pianist. And it's Wildlife Thursday. We're going to meet an iguana catcher because that's a great job. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.